Now, as we are diving into God's Word this morning, we have been spending the last several weeks looking at our unusual King. We have said that Jesus is this King that has been sent by God in the fulfillment of some unusual promises that we looked at the first week. Then the second week, we looked at the fact that He came in an unusual way through His birth that displayed unusual humility. Throughout this, we've been looking at His unusual nature and His unusual actions and how that applies to us and how we ought to live and who we we ought to be in light of the unusual God that he is. So with those things under, in our mind and understanding, then this morning we're shifting to looking at uh, what happened about 40 days after Jesus was born. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands today to say, how many of you are old? Uh, kids, how many of you think your parents are old? Yeah, you know, uh-huh. You know, it's interesting. Samantha and I were talking this week about different things and, and uh when different folks, like our grandparents, had passed away and realizing how old my mom and dad must have been when that took place and realizing that I'm a lot closer to those ages than I thought that I was. And then, you know, we, we got to that point where we wondered, you know, were they hanging on by the seat of their pants as much as we are? Like, you know, did they have it more together? Because they sure seemed like it when we were little. You know, we didn't know what was going on. But, boy, from this side of things, it looks a little different. I am so grateful that we do have a church that is made up of a wide range of ages. We've got folks all the way from birth all the way up through into their older years. We don't have quite anybody who's yet reached 100, although we do have some folks who are getting a little bit close. And here's what I want us to see this morning. How many of you, and I'm not going to ask you to name names, but how many of you know somebody who, when they got older, they got mean? Anybody? Okay. All right? You know, as we're looking this morning, I I want you to look at two folks who were following Jesus well into what Dr. Falwell used to call that fourth quarter of life and displayed an unusual devotion that allowed them to be among the first who recognized who Jesus was. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. If you're using the Pew Bible, if you don't have one with you, uh, this is going to be on page 909 of the Pew Bible, which is the black book there in the back of the pew there in front of you. By the way, if you're joining us this morning online, hi, we're glad you're here. Uh, We hope that you'll open your Bible with you there where you're at and uh, just be able to follow along with us. Uh, Last week, we looked at Luke chapter 2, and we were looking at Jesus' arrival. We saw that he was born in a very humble way, in a very humble place, to very humble family. In fact, this morning we're going to see yet another indication that Jesus' mom and dad were not rich. We left off there at verse 20 when we had this group of shepherds who had been to see Jesus and they were telling everyone about him while they went back to work. Uh, Verse 21 through 24 then, we find Mary and Joseph doing exactly what God told them to do. Uh, They named him Jesus. At, At eight days old, they would name the baby and they named him Jesus just like the angel had told them to. And then after 40 days, there was a a purification ritual and there was a dedication ceremony that they would perform for the mom and for the baby. Now, when they did this, uh, they normally would just kind of do it at home or at a synagogue or something like that. However, since Mary and Joseph are only about five miles outside of Jerusalem, they decide to go on up and go ahead and do this ceremony at the temple. So they're going up and they're making the offering for Mary's purification and dedicating Jesus because if you remember, all of the firstborn of Israel belonged to God and he established that with the Passover and all those kind of things. But there's an interesting note when we look here. As it says there, they went to make the uh, the sacrifice there, verse 23. Then it says, verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, 
a pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons. Now, I know that most of you spent at least an hour in the book of Leviticus this morning studying all of the Levitical laws and what sacrifices go with what issues and and things like that. So this is just a refresher for you. By the way, if you're not familiar, I'm totally being sarcastic, okay? Uh, In case that doesn't carry through over the the camera very well. The, The reality is most of us have no idea when we read this, the significance of it. You see, in Leviticus chapter 12, it talks about the sacrifice that a new mom was supposed to offer. And it says this in Leviticus chapter 12, verse 8. You'll see it up on the screen. If she doesn't have sufficient means for a sheep, see, you were supposed to bring a sheep as the offering. But if you don't have sufficient means for a sheep, she may take two turtle doves or two young pigeons, one for a burnt offering, the other for a sin offering. The priest will then make atonement on her behalf and she'll be clean. So what do we find? Jesus' parents couldn't even afford a sheep. They're bringing the poor people's offering. They're bringing doves or pigeons. Look how humble it is that the God of the universe would be born into a family that couldn't even afford a sheep. Now, I don't know what the cost of a sheep is today. Does anybody know that offhand? I don't see the Gilmers are probably about the only folks who would know that. I don't see them this morning. But at the same time, It's incredible to think about as Mary is offering these doves, these pigeons on her behalf because they couldn't afford a sheep. Isn't it interesting to think about the fact that the baby that she's holding in her arms is the one that John the Baptist would say is the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world? He's the one that would actually be the fulfillment of all of those sacrifices, of all of the promises, of all of the shadows of the Old Testament law. Jesus is the one that's going to be the final sacrifice. So as she's offering her sacrifice for purification, she's actually holding the one who would be the final sacrifice for sin. What an incredible picture. So in the middle of this, we encounter two older adults. While Joseph and Mary are doing the things that they're supposed to do and honoring God by dedicating Jesus, while that's happening, they encounter an older gentleman named Simeon and a really old woman named Anna, okay? Now, I don't mean any offense by that, but you'll see in a minute, if you're not familiar, just how old this lady was. Now, as we look at them, they they probably knew each other. You know, Jerusalem would have been a fairly small area. They'd been around for a while. They weren't together, though. As we see their reaction to Jesus, they both modeled for us an unusual devotion that you and I should display of what it looks like to be devoted to our unusual king, okay? So, in fact, this morning, I want us to challenge us to have that same level of devotion. We're going to examine three main components of their lives that demonstrated that. So I I want to challenge you to do the same. Now, start with me here in verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple. When the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to perform for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him up in his arms, praised God, and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised, for my eyes have seen your salvation. You've prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation for the Gentiles, and glory to your people Israel. His father and mother were amazed about what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary, Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed, a sword will pierce your own soul, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now, it's interesting to think about the weight that Mary would have carried as one day she would eventually see her own son there hanging on the cross. 
By the way, we also know that, that her other kids, because uh, James, Jesus' half-brother, some of these other guys were martyred as well. So a difficult life that God had called her to. And then verse 36, there was also a prophetess, Anna, a daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was well along in years. Now, that's an understatement. Listen, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, okay? So they could have gotten married as early as about 12 in those days. It was a very different culture than ours. We would not recommend or encourage that today. However, back then, they could get married as early as 12. So she was married for seven years and then had been a a widow for 84 years, okay? If you do the math, that puts her well north of 100. So this is a, a very old woman. It says that she, however, she did not leave the temple serving God night and day with fasting and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began to thank God and to speak about him to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Man, can you even imagine this whole situation? Here you are, there's been angels, there's been shepherds, you're in this weird place, it's been 40 days since Jesus was born, now you show up to the temple and this old man walks up and takes him out of your arms and says, this is it, all right God, now I can die. And then all of a sudden, this really old lady walks over and says, hey, this is the one that God's promised. Now how is it that they were in the right place at the right time to see the Messiah? because they demonstrated an unusual devotion in at least three different ways. And we're going to put these in the form of commands for us today because we need to be able to display that. Think about it, guys. How many people do you know that you went to church with when you were younger who are no longer walking with Jesus? How many pastors have you heard about who had this great ministry, this great walk with the Lord, and now they've thrown it all away? The big term for it right now is ex-evangelical. People who were evangelical believers but have abandoned the faith. They've deconstructed their faith. Guys, we all go through times and periods where we wonder, where we doubt. But think about how many people have not chosen to finish well. But then I can list for you dozens of people. Harold Waycaster. Carolyn Higginbotham, Tommy Height, Bob Swain, Naomi Swain, Bill Jackson, men and women who've been a part of this church and other churches that I've been a part of who have followed Jesus to the last moment. Harold Waycaster was the first guy I mentioned. He was a Sunday school teacher at Bellevue Baptist Church, was probably in his 80s, I believe. I was 22, and so I just knew he was really old compared to me. Mr. Harold was super tall and super skinny, and he had a heart condition where he had about 30% heart fraction or whatever that is. He taught Sunday school on Sunday, and he passed away at home on Tuesday. He served faithfully to the very end. And that's what I want to be. At 70, 80, 90, 100 years of Jesus tarries and allows me to live that long, I want to be a Simeon. I want to be an Anna. I, I want to be somebody who walks up and recognizes what God's doing. So if that's going to be us, then let's look quickly-ish, at three different characteristics we need to have in our own lives. The first thing, if you and I are going to display the same kind of devotion that they did, is number one, stay righteous. Stay righteous. I I debated on what term to use here, but I figured I'd just use the same term that the Bible did there in verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout. Now, when we think righteous, we're like, righteous, dude, right? We're not talking about righteous in the term of surfer guy, okay? Righteous here is the idea of conforming to the standard will or character of God, 
okay? Now, kids, I know that you use the term righteous all day long, every day, right? So let's try to break that down just a little bit. Righteousness is doing things that Jesus would have done and not doing things that Jesus wouldn't have done, okay? Righteousness externally, the way we live, it's about acting, about thinking, about treating other people and behaving in the way that lines up, as this definition says, the character, the will, the nature of who God is. So doing what God says and not, okay? So when the Bible describes Simeon this way, that means that he's a man who did what God commands us to do and avoided what God commands us to avoid. But keep in mind, we've talked about this before. All of this comes out of a heart that has already been changed, okay? Some people have had the idea over the years that if I can just go through the Bible and I can list all of the do's and all of the don'ts and I can check off those things, then I'm going to be right with God because it's about doing good things. In fact, if you ask most people in Christiansburg today, say, all right, if you believe in heaven, how do I get into heaven? They'll say, do good things, right? That's what most of us think. However, that's not what the Bible teaches us. In fact, if that were the case, then your dog is probably the best Christian you know, right? He doesn't cuss. He doesn't smoke. He doesn't drink. He doesn't take money from people. You you know what I'm saying? It's got to be more than that. See, what the Bible teaches us is that we can't be righteous in and of ourselves. We can't do what God says. We can't live up to God's standard. So God loved us so much that he would send this baby Jesus to die, to grow up, to die in our place and take our sin upon himself. So then once he did that and we receive the gift of salvation that he gives us through his death and through his resurrection, then now you and I have been made righteous. However, here's the problem that I think we've got sometimes. We've almost gone too far the opposite direction. Sometimes it's easy for us to say, well, you know, I know that I'm saved by putting my trust in Jesus. So because I've put my trust in Jesus, it doesn't matter how I live. Guys, there's a problem with that. I've used the example before. Um, If if I were, were out here, you and I were walking down Roanoke Street here. And there was a wreck on the interstate, so there's all kinds of semi-trucks coming through. And, and I saw that as we were walking down the street, one of those semis was getting loose, and it was getting ready to take you out. And so I shoved you out of the way of that semi-truck, and it ran over the bottom half of me, okay? But I saved your life. Now, can you imagine coming to visit me in the hospital? When I'm sitting there connected to all the machines and all the tubes with the casts and all those kind of things, coming out of my 16th surgery, what would your attitude be? If you came in that room, I hope, and I hope if I, the roles were reversed, I'd be the same way. I hope I'd be awful grateful. And you saved my life. And it costs you a lot to do that. So can you imagine somebody walking into that hotel room, or that hospital room, excuse me, and punching me in the face? Can you imagine? Hey, Sean, you pushed me out of the way of this truck. Man, I'm so glad for that. Wham! Does that make any sense? Why would you hurt me more if I had saved your life, right? So in the same kind of way, if Jesus has saved us, there should be a desire in us to do what pleases him, to do what he wants us to do. In fact, so, so it's not that that saves us. It's because we've been made right with God through Jesus, we start living that out every day in the way that we live. That's what Simeon was doing. He had put his trust in God, and so he was beginning to live out those things, and he was living in a righteous way. That righteousness wasn't what saved him, but it showed that he had that relationship with God. 
okay? So if we're going to do that, then that's going to be us. It's more about checking boxes than just checking boxes on a list. But at the same time, if you and I have been saved, it's got to change the way I act. In fact, if you're wondering what this looks like because you're still new to Christianity or you've kind of let it, uh, you've just kind of been coasting for a while, let me just challenge you. Go back and read. There's some passages in the New Testament where Paul just gives us these real quick, rapid-fire lists of do this, don't do that, stop doing this, and put on this. Now, again, these things do not save us. But if we're going to display unusual devotion, they should be characterizing our life. In fact, I can put just a quick list of these up on the screen real quick. Here's just four of them for you to chew on this week. Uh, write these down on the back of your bullets in there or take a quick picture of the screen if you've got your, your phone with you to look them up later. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Galatians 5, 19 through 26. Ephesians 4, 20 to 31. Colossians 3, 12 to 17. If you sit down with those lists and you have a relationship with Christ already, these are the kind of things that should characterize the way that you live, Okay? Yes, your pastor just told you you can use your phone in church, all right? That's all right. I'm going to tell you you can in a minute, too, for another thing, all right? Romans chapter 12, Galatians 5, Ephesians 4, Colossians 3. You'll notice there's some overlap between some of the things that you're told to do in those verses. There's some similarities between them, and that makes sense because it's the same God telling us to do these things. But if you and I are going to be like Simeon and like Anna, we must have that relationship with Christ that's played out in living righteous lives. Okay, so the first part of this is number one, stay righteous, stay righteous, okay? Now, moving on, the second characteristic we see in Simeon and Anna is that they, number two, stay hopeful, stay hopeful. Now, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this one today because we're going to talk more about this next week. Next week, we're going to finish off our series on the unusual king by looking at his unusual return, okay? And I'm going to go ahead and tell you, you're going to be disappointed because I'm not going to tell you everything about how it's all going to play out, but we're going to focus on the fact that Jesus is coming again and how we ought to live in light of it, okay? However, as you look at Simeon and Anna, you find that their life was characterized by hope. Now, hope in our world is, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. Or I hope that we don't have any traffic on our way to our grandma's house. I hope that these things take place. We don't have any certainty. The the better way to think about biblical hope, biblical hope is a certainty in a promise that God has made that hasn't come true yet, but living as if it was already true, okay? It is sure. It's like saying, I hope the sun rises tomorrow. Okay, I, I hope that the sun comes up, and I hope that the sun sets this evening. Now, we have all certainty that that's going to take place, because unless Jesus decides to completely dissolve creation today in some way, the sun always rises and the sun always sets. In an even more sure way, when God makes us a promise, we know he's going to keep it. Now, Simeon and Anna had had some unique experiences where Simeon specifically had had a unique promise given to him. Verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. So an older man knows he's not going to die until he gets to see the Messiah. Now, he didn't know how that was going to play out. I don't know if he knew that he would only get to see him as a baby. We don't know how long Simeon lived after this. We don't know if he got to see the rest of Jesus' ministry. We know that he didn't get to live to see Jesus return and those kind of things because we haven't seen that yet. However, he knew that he was going to get to meet him. Even as a 40-day-old baby, he knew God was going to keep his promise. 
Now, again, next week when we get through this, we're going to talk about all of the promise that God's made and the hope that we have in the fact that Jesus is going to return. But let me just put up something real quick for you to see. That's not the only promise that God has made to the believer, okay? Here's this list. Well, that's way too tiny for me to read. Yes, you're right, okay? Now, that's why, by the way, if you have your phone, you can scan the QR code and get our digital bulletin. In the digital bulletin, there's a link to, it says the promises to the believer. You can click that button underneath that, and it'll take you to this list so you can sit down and read it. This list comes out of H.L. Wilmington's book of lists. I think it's out of print. I couldn't find it anywhere anymore. I've got it in my digital Bible software. Um, but this is 41 promises that God made to the believer. Abundant life, a crown of life, a heavenly home, a new name, answers to prayer, assurance, cleansing, clothing, comfort, companionship, deliverance, divine sonship, everlasting life. And it goes on and it goes on and it goes on. Many of those are promises for now. You remember what Gordon read at the beginning there as he quoted from Philippians chapter 4, verse 7? It's, that's a promise that the peace of God that surpasses comprehension will guard hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In fact, the verse right before that is the command that says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And as you do that, as you let those things be known to God, then he promises that the peace of God will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus, just like Gordon experienced earlier this year. Now, we may not see Jesus come back yet, but we've got plenty of promises that we can hope in. We can know, just like the sun's going to rise tomorrow, we know that God can give peace. We know that God gives us eternal life. We know that we have assurance as believers that we're going to be in heaven with him one day and that he is with us every single moment of every day. All of these are not based off of what I say or what I think, but if you notice, there's a scripture reference next to each and every single one of them. Here's what you'll notice is not on the list. Wealth, an easy life, okay? Nowhere does God promise that you're always going to be. Nowhere does God promise that you're going to have everything you've ever wanted and that you're going to die rich and leave a massive inheritance to your children's children's children. He doesn't say that life is going to be easy, that all your relationship problems are going to get fixed, that you're going to land the dream job or get the degree that you've wanted or none of those things. However, he's promised us at least 41 other things that are even better and more permanent than any of that. Anna and Simeon were both looking for the consolation of Israel. They were looking for God to fulfill his promise. And so because they were looking for it, they got to see him do it. Okay? So first, we're going to stay righteous. Second, we're going to stay hopeful. Not just, I wish this would come true, or maybe, hopefully, you know, just like you were hoping that you'd get this thing for Christmas, right? We, we just finished a season of anticipation with our kids looking under the Christmas tree and seeing the wrapped presents, and boy, I hope this is a Lego set. I hope this is a book. I hope this is not socks, although I don't know about you. Our kids actually get excited about fuzzy socks. I don't know. Um, certain socks are good, just not white tube socks, I guess. All right? We stay righteous. We stay hopeful. And then the third thing that we see with Simeon and Anna both, is we stay responsive. We stay responsive. I look here at what it says in verse 27. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple. Guided by the Spirit. See, Simeon was walking in righteousness. He was doing what God said he should do and not doing the things that God said he shouldn't do, which meant the only way for us to do that is to have the Spirit of God in us giving us the strength. At the same time, as we get to know who God is and as we look at his word and we study it, we also know that that his Spirit makes it come alive to us. 
The, the word of God makes sense to us. He applies it to our hearts in ways that we, we wouldn't be able to understand otherwise. And you know what? Maybe I'm going to sound a little Pentecostal here for a second. But the reality is the Holy Spirit guides us. There's moments where you just know you got to go talk to this person. You just know you're supposed to pick up the phone and make that call. You just know you're supposed to go to that place, do that thing. You just know. Or you just know that you're not supposed to. Now, Sean, that sounds kind of mystical and woo-woo, and you're right. Here's what I'll tell you some guiding principles for that. One, always look at this with humility because you're not God and you could get it wrong. Number two, God will never tell you to do something that contradicts what he says in the Bible, okay? Well, God told me to leave my husband because I'm just supposed to be happy. Now, if if it's an abusive situation, if there's infidelity, we'll talk. But if it's just you're not happy in marriage, that's that's not a thing. God told me that my boss wasn't paying me right, so it was all right for me just to, to take a little bit out of the drawer at night closing time because, you know, he's not going to miss it. God didn't tell you that, okay? God's never going to lead you to do something that runs contrary to his word, okay? Now, in all of this then, here's the beautiful thing. There are moments where God's going to lead you, God's going to guide you, God's going to allow you to see him at work in ways you never would have seen him before. I I can think of times when God put somebody on my heart. One in particular, I was in an unusual place that I don't usually visit, and it reminded me of somebody. And that night I was laying in bed, and I just couldn't shake the fact that that we needed to to reach out to that person. So I, I had Samantha text this lady. And God sent that text at exactly the right time to be able to do something in her life. I can't give you more specifics, but it was something only God could do. I've had situations where the first time I remember this happening, I was in high school and I was sitting at a lunch table and most of my friends didn't know Jesus and didn't go to church. They asked me some question about heaven and I was like, man, I got no idea how to say anything about this. And I remember when I responded to them, the words that came out of my mouth were like the most succinct gospel presentation in history. I have no idea what it was, but it was really good. So much so that everybody sat back and went, huh, there's a bunch of high school guy. What happened there? The Holy Spirit took over. I've had times where I've been sharing the gospel in Zimbabwe and I've been asked the question and I'm sitting there going, I have no idea how to respond to this. And then all of a sudden, God puts an illustration in my mind connects different things that that, that he pulls together. Guys, stay responsive to the Holy Spirit, even at 103 years old. Because see, Simeon was responsive, so he went to the temple that day. Anna was already there, and she sees what's going on, and she's like, wait a second, that's him. And so she comes over, and she starts telling everybody about what's going on. These are our old people, okay? Here's why I say it that way. Because some of you are in that season of life or you're headed into that season of life and you think, I'm done. God's done with me. I've done everything I'm supposed to do. No, you're not. Do this real quick, okay? If you still have a pulse, you still have a purpose, and God is still doing something in and through you. 
So stay responsive. Be looking. How many days do you wake up with an expectation that God's going to do something today? Now, most days are mundane and routine. I mean, Simeon and Anna had gone to the temple thousands of times probably by this point in their lives. By the way, we also don't know how long they'd been like this. I mean, we know that Anna had been a widow for 84 years, and it seems like she probably had followed, or followed God through that time, but we don't know that. Maybe she didn't get right with God till she was 65 years old. Maybe she was 85. Maybe she was 95. But at this point, she was following Jesus. Literally, she was going over to find him. I want that kind of devotion for you. And I want that kind of devotion for me. So here's how we're going to find it. First off, it starts by coming to that unusual king and surrendering to him as your Lord, putting him in charge of your life. Saying, God, I can't do this on my own. I can't fix this. I can't make it better. From there, once you come into that relationship with him, when you lay your life down, the beauty of it is he has taken your sin on himself on the cross and he's paid for it and he gives you his life in its place. So now you can start walking in righteousness. You can start following the commands of Scripture. Don't disregard those because you're afraid of being a legalist. Instead, do what God says. Honor him. Don't do the things that God says not to do. As you do that, stay hopeful. Hopeful that he's going to give you the strength you need today. That he's going to give us this day our daily bread as we often pray. Stay hopeful that at the end of all of this, we know that Jesus is coming back. Whether it's through me, through death, or through his return for the world. And then every moment, recognize and stay responsive. You know, I have a weed eater in my shed. I actually got a couple of them because I'm weird. But I have a weed eater in my shed, and it will lay there until sometime, what, mid-April, early May, maybe, before I have to get the weed eater back out. There's nothing wrong with that weed eater, but I don't need it today. There may be seasons where it doesn't feel like God's drawing you as much, God's using you as much, where there's not as much to respond. But, you know, here's the thing. If that weed eater's in good shape, then in May when I walk in there and I pull the cord, it's ready, and it starts right up, right? So be a weed eater. God may not need you today in some big, flashy way. Stay righteous. Stay hopeful. And then stay responsive so that when he comes to the shed and he needs you, you're ready. Let's pray. With your head bowed and your eyes closed this morning, my question for you is, what do you need to do to respond to him today? Is there an area where... First off, you realize you've never actually surrendered to Jesus and you have been trying to do it all yourself. You've, it's been about the do's and the don'ts and you don't actually have a relationship with him. Well, guys, my challenge to you is, again, just surrender to him. Lay it down and say, God, I can't do this on my own. Then my, my challenge for you then, if you're here today and you've made that decision to follow Jesus or if you're watching us online and you know that you know him, my question is for you, are you walking in righteousness Are you doing what he's told you to do? Are there any areas of sin where you're avoiding what he's told you to do and you're not doing it or you're doing what he's told you not to do? And if you don't even know, then 
go back and rewind this video a little bit if you're watching it on Facebook or on YouTube and, and find that list. Go back and read those passages this week. Some of you guys are off work this week. You got more spare time. Spend some time chewing on those different passages and say, God, what do I need to do differently in 2022 to be unusually devoted? With that, stay hopeful. Rest in the promises of God. Maybe for you, 2021 has taken all of the wind out of your sails. You're exhausted and facing a new year. You just have no idea what to do. Why not pull up that list of promises? Use that list there that's on the the bulletin and, and go through and find three or four of those. Just say, God, I need this. And hope in what he's gonna do. And then stay ready. Stay responsive. Be ready when he leads and and be sensitive to when he guides, even if it seems crazy, even if it seems weird, even if it's different. Why not go into 2022 with that kind of heart? He says, God, I want to be like Simeon and Anna, and I want to stay devoted to you till the day that I die. Help me be righteous. Help me be hopeful. Help me be responsive.